Hello, I'm Rob Hirschfeld, CEO and co-founder of Rackend and your host for the Cloud 2030 podcast. Today's episode is about incentives and how we can structure incentives to build strong, resilient infrastructure. In this case, specifically power infrastructure. Because what we really need to think about is that there are a lot of commercial incentives for internet providers and for consumers to have good internet. But there aren't the same incentives for consumers to have reliable power systems. Uh, and we are seeing a rash of failures and faults in the grid. In this conversation, we talk about storage and storage systems and resilience of the grid, not by putting more wires in the ground, but actually creating incentives to, for people to have independent supplies and independent sources of generation that can support them and what it will take to do that. It's a fascinating conversation and really concerns everybody who has a home that relies on power. So everybody enjoy the conversation. Considering that again, our, our, the only remaining nuclear plant in, in Ontario is getting very close to end of life. Like in a couple of years, we are going to have a power shortage. So how this is going to measure up with them being able to provide power and internet at the same time? Um, All I can I tell you I, is I'm shopping for a generator. And they're in very, very short supply. Yeah. I, I started looking at, at the option of, of like getting solar panels. Yeah. I Just this is what, what's actually interesting to me here is that the and I, I see the same thing in Texas is the inability of the infrastructure providers to provide reliability is basically having everybody scramble to their own um backup. Right, right. It's it's driving people to be um more independent and have have you know some local autonomy. Uh it's actually funny because you could you you could turn around and, and apply the same thing in cloud. Cloud right now is super reliable and if it stopped being reliable, it's yeah. interesting how fast the power grid um you know essential services are on the you know it's an essential service. If it's not reliable, we're very quick to take matters into our own hand and create some reasonable backup. Yeah. Even even solar now is usually being sold with solar plus batteries. Right. The the I mean a a good way of thinking about it is exactly that. It becomes uh not if in fact the service becomes unreliable uh or there's a perception of um being at risk in the case of power the notion of generating you know either generating your own power with solar um storing it in the event that um you have some outage uh generators and so forth problem is if we're talking about communication um yeah, but for there to be communication, there's that backbone, there's that interconnectivity that if it's not there and not reliable, well, 
good. I can, you know, I can manage my ring doorbell. I can, uh, you know, kind of take care of the the cam, the webcam that's, you know, watching the the pets out in the backyard. But um, that doesn't, that doesn't fit the same, the same structures. It just simply does not deliver the same on the same basis. Um, you know what you're re- what you're what you're looking for of necessity with you know telecom is connectivity, and that is end to end. Unfortunately, you can, you've got the possibility. You've got the possibility with with certain aspects of compute to be disconnected for a period of time. I understand that. But ultimately, very hard to become self-sufficient in that. And, but this, this to me is where the analogy is really good with the power system because the, none of the systems that are being sold today are really self-sufficiency systems. They're right there. They are um, outage recovery systems keep the food in my refrigerator you know going let me charge my cell phones their continuity their 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 continuity solutions they are not replacements they're not they're yeah right and though so even even if you know like my, my son has a solar system on his house that generates more power than he consumes and so but his battery is only you know 30 minutes or an hour it's longer than that but it's it's not sufficient to you couldn't run you know standalone that takes all a whole nother level of of system right right um what well the, uh, this, go ahead John. sorry the you know it's funny because there's a couple of houses in my neighborhood that have solar and i've spoken to the people and the cost to install when they put it in which was probably 10 years ago and now is not that much different. It's a very expensive mm. undertaking, number one. But the the reason that I'm mentioning this is because one of the people who has the solar panels actually put a note in the mail in the super box for my kid to ask him whether they could he could come and wire in a generator as well, because they were finding that their batteries are insufficient to keep them going for a period of time. And the folks who I'm friendly with next door, um, who are uh, new Canadians, he wants a 100% failover generator to be added to his home. Wow. It's same size house uh, as mine. So it's 4,000 square feet. And he wants it seven by 24 ready availability. He's that yes. concerned that the grid will not be able to support the area. Does he have room for a small shipping container in his backyard? <laughs> because yes. that's what a data center uh, generator yeah. comes in, and, and, and those things are loud. <laughs> They're lo- well. That's my concern, um, and my son's concern, of course. But you know, just to um, give you an idea, even at supplier prices, manufacturer cost. Uh, or, or distributor cost. This to have it wired in to instantaneously fail over. We're talking thirty grand, at least. 
and all the all the funny fun equipment there you also have the have the fuel that's i mean it's only gonna it's 24 hours as long as you have fuel and yeah, if you're right. in a situation where you're running that thing 24 hours a day this there's a likelihood that you're not going to be able to get the fuel out to replace it now you could i guess you could do a natural gas line and hope the natural gas lines well, that's what he wants to do but I, I, I don't feel think that he's, too. yeah and i don't think he's going to be able to get the permit for the natural gas to do that i mean yes we have natural oh, gas yeah. in the but to have a generator running on natural gas in the back of your home is kind of a nightmare waiting to happen god knows what that insurance cost alone <laughs> is going to be and i'm saying to myself i love um, the guy dearly he's a really smart guy i understand where he's trying to go but this is insanity it, what but what you're describing to me is is something that's really evolved over the last 10 years because 10 years ago people would put solar on their house run their meter backwards and, and you know say i'm doing my part what, right. what we're actually talking about now i was just in a conversation um two days ago about about this people are looking at it as solar to charge my battery my battery then runs core services and then in a 24-hour period i will probably get enough solar to keep that cycle going, it's a diminished, it's diminished, but it's, it's, you know, my refrigerator's running, my, you know, my, my wireless is running, but I, I've got lights at night. Type of yeah. Thing. You, yeah. And particularly like with, with newer electric vehicles, which are able to, uh, to return power um, mm -hmm. to, to the grid, uh, using them uh, as a battery for your home uh, becomes also much more viable. Right. I, I actually, I think, I think we're finally going to see the vehicle. And it's funny, we we saw it as vehicle to grid ten years ago, fifteen years ago, where people were like, "Oh, the, your electric car is going to return power to the grid." Now it's, and that was always like, I don't want the power company deciding that they're going to reduce my range if I have an electric car. I'm I'm, I'm a weirdo because I built an electric car in two thousand five, so I've been dealing with it. I've been thinking about this for a lot longer than average. But and I, you never wanted. The power company to decide unless they're going to pay you a premium. But managing it myself to say I'm going to top, make sure my electric car is topped up because a storm is coming through, and then I'm going to manage my own power and uses a you know, plug it into my house takes total total sense. And I can see that is motivating people to buy electric cars. Um, yeah, already the top feature that I when people talk about the GM for the F one fifty Lightning, the Ability to power your house is consistently included in people's top three, mm -hmm. which means we are in a complete. I mean, you, you look, take a step back, and our opinion about power reliability to our house is transformed um, over the last decade. No pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I wish I'd planned that one. That was, it would it would have it would have been a very good one to. to um, I thought I you were we, we, we are, we, we are in, beautiful. In, we are in a in in a period of turmoil regarding power supply, uh, not just in Canada but but in the, in the world in general. Um, however, I, I think there is a sil silver lining. Like again, like with. with that the there there's been a lot of work done recently with affordability to 
store power for later use at the household level, like not just the vehicles, but also technologies like the Tesla's Powerwall. And, and people are, 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 are using uh, older batteries to build equivalent Powerwalls for themselves. Like they're, they're, you're taking a, a, an old EV battery that, that's holding maybe 50% charge. That's still 50%, like on a, on, on a Chevy Bolt, that, that's uh, 30 kilowatt hour. That, that's still good enough to, to keep your house powered for a couple of days. Making me feel better about my, my 10 year old Bolt and the 11 kilowatts it has. You're right, I could, I could actually yeah. deconstruct that battery and possibly. Uh, Turn it into a absolutely, yeah. and, and and then on the utility side, uh, I mean, at least in Canada, the provinces, uh, or at least Ontario and Saskatchewan, are are putting their money on on Canada's uh, small modular reactor design, which mm-hmm. is intended to be like enough to power a city. So so now instead of having in Ontario in okay. 20, 20 years from now, instead of having one nuclear plant that serves the, the whole province, we may have a half dozen that serve various regions. Yeah. So the failure resiliency and outage resiliency is much improved. That yeah. Now, it's, it's, there's going to be growing pains getting there because, again, like the province has decided to, to sit on their thumbs until it, it, it was too late before doing anything. But uh, at least I'm hopeful uh, that the future is not going to be bleak. Is it, there actual serious consideration or has it been approved that they can move forward with? Um, um, as smaller... far as I know, it's been approved. Let, let me find the article for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure that it has been approved for them to do that. And I totally agree that it, for for the way the GTA is and, you know, Klaus and I, how we're about an hour and a half, maybe apart in distance, mm-hmm. uh, travel time. Um, I would say for the GTA, it makes huge sense because of the way the sprawl is that probably one at one end of the city and one in another, and maybe one in the northern sections because it's still rapidly growing and there's a lot of building going on, um, would make a lot more sense than the way the utilities are set up and the way the grid is set up. But one of the things that I'm hearing a lot of talk about is as hydrogen is developing so quickly and maturing so fast, whether that isn't a better way to go just because of Lake Ontario, just because that could be another new industry. And to me, that makes a lot more sense. But I don't know how long it will take to advance that technology enough to make it worthwhile and cost-effective. But it's certainly a better alternative, or less less hazardous alternative. I I have an interesting place to take this on towards the towards the economics and the incentives question. I just I I just want to acknowledge that I'm going to postpone the distributed ID conversation because this is really interesting and and we're all moving on it after uh, 20 minutes of discussion. So um, but I'm I'm thinking about one of the strange incentives here um, from Internet 
um, for internet providers, there's actually a lot of incentives for people to have corporate incentives for you to have good internet, right? Netflix, Amazon, right? Um, you know, there, there's a lot of people who, who need their consumers to have good internet. So I actually think that one of the things that'll make sure that that keeps happening, your, your internet and phone are going to be more reliable than your power, because I don't think there's a lot of commercial incentives for you to have reliable power. You want it, but but except for the power company and you, does anybody care if you have spotty power? Else. I see what you're at. I see your point. So you, as, a as a commercial incentive, what you're saying the the existence of of reliable communication is a basis for yeah a, a lot of money to be made, but also the delivery of a lot of a lot of other essential services, uh, everything from you know remote medicine and and the like to you know the kinds of support that we took to and relied upon very, very heavily during the pandemic. So, yeah. That's, that's I, I'm, I'm just, I'm thinking through, you know, incentives and who's paying for what and, and, and how things, you know, how even, even to what government incentives we're handing out to, for things to happen. Um, you know, and, and what's, what's pulling things forward. I had a similar conversation, by the way, with, with green data center stuff, like, what are the pull through incentives from that perspective? And there aren't a lot um, that you could you could push people to make greener choices that are that are actually incented. But but I do think that you know because we saw Google do this. Like Google came in and said, "Oh, we're going to put fiber everywhere because our business is benefited by having a lot of consumers with great connectivity." Um, you know, and, and there was no uh, there's no apology for it. it. They weren't doing it for public good. They were doing it, you know build their own services up. And I can see Amazon getting into the same same business, um, especially as they get more and more IoT. And, you know, I, I, it's actually hard to imagine them not becoming a, a carrier from that perspective. Um, well, I could see Amazon doing it long before I could see Google doing it only for one reason. Okay. Amazon Health, which is their next big move. Um, mm. Not only not only because of the acquisition of PillPack and the Amazon drugstore and, you know, the, whether well, they divest Whole Foods or keep Whole Foods, you know, Amazon medical. is slowly moving its way towards a wellness brand. So I could see them doing it before I could see Google doing it. On the um, other side of that fence, though, the answer to, you know, uh, and, and a lot of Europe does this, they went to a 24-hour system of work. Like when I lived in Denmark, it, everything was on a 24-hour clock. In parts of Germany, similarly. And call it an early unintentional green initiative, but they incentivized businesses to work on a 24-hour clock so that they could optimize the use of power right. and incentivize companies, a lot of manufacturing, to do that just because the fact that it was off hours, it was off peak, they could regulate mm. better, they incentivized them to do it, and people actually got paid more 
to work the graveyard shift, like from 11 till four or whatever in the morning, um, that was the highest wage that you could earn. And mm -hmm. so the more during the day it was like, you know, eight till five, you got way less money than people who worked the really odd hours. And I could see the business incentive for doing something similar, especially in either not fully lights out factories, but smart factories and industrials yeah. where it doesn't no. apply as things like healthcare. Actually, that, that's a very good point. And, and therein lies one of the, the groups that do have an incentive for a, a, a continuous and reliable um, delivery of, of electricity, of power. The question is, is that as, is there as equal, is there a, is there a relatively similar and an analogous incentive for power to the consumer, to the household? So that's certainly the case with, uh, you know, your 24 hour uh, story argument makes a lot of sense for manufacturing because they're, they're heavy consumers. The question mm -hmm. is, can you find something that's similar for um, the consumers? To the degree it's it becomes common for people to have storage systems, battery systems, it may turn out that one of the things you're going to do is um, incentivize the consumer to, first of all, invest in or put in battery systems, and then second, give them a uh, preferable rate for power that's used to top up your batteries. Yeah. I, so I, I don't, I don't see that as being, as being led by the power utilities. I, I see the... Like, let, let, let's be honest. Uh, in, in order for there to be an incent a commercial incentive to, to provide these solutions, there needs to be a market demand. Mm -hmm. Now, right now, the demand is not high enough, but, but I can definitely see within the next 10 years the demand being high enough. And I, well, I see the demand, the demand of what kind and from who? Uh, of, of power continuity solutions. For because because that, that's what we're looking for on, 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 the, on the consumer side. I, I, you're uh, actually making me think of, because I'm still thinking about your, your, your city size nuclear footprints, which you could see a municipality competing for a, you know, Amazon satellite office or Apple satellite office where it's like, all right. And, and the, the word company town is just screaming and screaming to me right now, but where you can <laughs> say, you know what, we're going to take the city. We're going to put, you know, make the power reliable in the city as part or frankly, I can see Amazon funding it saying, you know what, we need reliable power for our workers. They're working from home. They're commuting on their electric cars. They're, they're using our office. We have some manufacturing facilities here. All of that stuff needs to be reliable. We are going to pay to upgrade the infrastructure fund to upgrade the infrastructure in, in this city in exchange for, I don't know what type of incentives. And I actually have a, a I don't see Amazon or, or, or Smart doing that. I, I, I think it's more, much more likely 
that they would pay a little bit extra for some unused real estate and put wind farms there. I, I actually have a, a case a case study. It's not a formal case study, but I, I, I have an anecdotal case study for you of this exact thing happening here in Texas. Elon Musk in Starbase in Starbase moved basically bought small town in uh, South Texas, south, down by South Padre. And he is moving people there like crazy. They are building, you know, he's dumping a ton of money into improving the roads, improving the infrastructure, improving the facilities, um, right? He is, he, that, to, to keep SpaceX running, he is, and he's building, you know, wind farms and solar farms, things like that. So he can generate his own, you know, uh, manufacture his own uh, fuel. But he's also working because he's attracting so much, so many people, doing a whole bunch of municipal improvements to improve the city. Mm. Um, well, like, like crazy. Uh, it's, it's business imperative. Yeah. And, you know, it's not, I mean, I've heard of several instances like that, but I, I, and I relate this not because of any other reason than all of the manufacturing in, for tech in China that sh- that shut up in Shenzhen and Guangdong and many of the other, you know, uh, in the in Hubei province where a lot of the manufacturing is or majority of the manufacturing is got built because you had companies like Intel and the big EMS companies and others, all of the industry, Qualcomm was part of it as well, go to the government in China and say, we will build your infrastructure, we'll pay for it will help you build it to be able to build these mega factories that are there to produce the goods. And that happened more than 20 years ago. And there, the incentive was so great for China to be able to get that Western technology infrastructure in place, comms infrastructure particularly, and the engineering resources and everything that went with it, that the, the, the big uh, behemoths of the industry got away with next to murder. I mean, they literally, they built dams, they roadways, railways, electric, electricity, everything that you could possibly need. And then you have these big factory announcements. And being part of that industry at the time and knowing what the pay-for-play actually was, was huge. But that's part of why, you know, this, this notion of the China thing, and I'm not trying to make this political, is a self-inflicted wound. Right. You went, you paid for the for the infrastructure to be built. You built your huge, high volume, low mix factories. You took it for whatever you could get. You you even brought in the rest of the ecosystem of ODM and process management and everything that goes along with it. You built that entire industry. And now you're turning around and going, you can't compete with me like that. That's not fair. Well, you did it to yourself, guys. And, you know, if you didn't have the prescience to realize that you were creating your own competition in the same location, then you're idiots. But, I mean, there were a lot of us that basically predicted this kind of thing would happen, but not on the scale. Right. And I'm not saying that it's all above board and there's no espionage and that kind of stuff. I'm not trying to make it a political argument, but I can see based on what you were saying, Rob, about the the city, the uh, company town being the next thing to come back. 
And I can see it where you have all these announcements of big manufacturing going in. They will be company towns. And, you know, um, in terms of the consumer mm -hmm. incentive, and this is what I was trying to say before, we have peak and off-peak rates for electricity. Sure. I do. But my, my provider gives me that, uh, get that option. And it ended up actually being more expensive than fixed time. Mm. Yeah. Because the rate per kilowatt hour at peak was almost like four cents more per kilowatt hour. Not that I do that much in peak, but we started doing this and, and you were talking about the consumer. I mean, laundry gets done at like 10 o'clock at night uh, or yeah. even later. Dishwashers go on at midnight or, or two o'clock in the morning. Those are the lowest rates. It's not something that you have to stand in front of or that's so loud that it's going to disrupt the entire household. And a lot of people are now looking at their devices and appliances for the same reason. Now, if you can power those with battery or hydrogen or solar, more power to you, no pun intended, because then you are actually creating a smart home that the government incentives for smart homes are really geared for. And, and that is also why I'm, I'm, I'm predicting a boom in power continuity solutions being developed yeah. within the next decade. Because yeah. it allows to offset that peak pricing, uh, it it there there will be an increasing demand for power continuity anyway as you see increasing brownouts or or God forbid blackouts, um, and there are manufacturers and, and, and vendors that are already well placed in churning out those solutions quickly, like LG. LG, LG Chem, for example, they, they are one of the, the major manufacturers of EV batteries. Mm -hmm. For them to turn around and, and provide a solution similar to Powerwall, it, it, it would cost them only a, take them only a couple of years of R&D at most. Like they already have the, the, the technology in place. They, they just need to package it really. And then we need this, and then we need the crafts and skilled labor to be able to do the installs and the yeah. right. I, I can definitely see like even if LG doesn't want to do sell directly to consumers, I can see them white labeling a product like that and all manufacturers getting into the market. Mm -hmm. Like they're Actually, already building their EVs. So, so come again. Don't they have a white label brand for industrials? Um probably. But like like LG Chem is uh, as far as I know, uh, they, they they produce all of the EV batteries for uh, for Chevy and for uh, Kia, no Hyundai, although maybe Kia too probably. Um, although Chevy, I don't know if their new Ultium batteries are LG or not. I'll have to double check that. This is um, this is actually where I think a non-battery technology or a non-lithium technology would be really interesting. Home, yeah. home use doesn't have the same requirements as automotive, right. and so having having a battery, you know, a heavy battery that was stationary but high cycle, um, and a battery could be very liberally interpreted to flywheel or you know sure. uh, anything sure. Um, sure. would be transformative. Sure. But I think that would be transformative. I think that, um, and this this is where I get hopeful about the tech. 
house, if households had the ability to store power in a cheap, reliable way, um, and you know, even just load shift. Uh, you know, Joanne, to your point, if I could, if I could store power when it was, you know, in the computer system to do this isn't hard. Net store power between, you know, midnight and six in the morning. Um, it would be transformative to then, you know, run my house off that that electricity for the rest of the day. Would be a very big deal. Um, and I, I don't think we're that far from that capability. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm. Saying, hey, you know, not lithium batteries, but you could do it with lithium batteries today. I just think you're competing with cars. Yeah. And so it's not as attractive. You, you can absolutely do it do it today. Uh, again, like if if you have the the electrical know-how to, to put the system together for yourself, it, it's absolutely doable. I have coworkers who are doing that. Um but what what I see not quite ready yet is the commercial off-the-shelf production of, of these systems. But I, I, I see a demand, and, and I'm sure that the manufacturers see the, see the, the case for growing demand as well. So I, I, um, I would be very surprised that, that if within the next five years, we wouldn't see commercial off-the-shelf solutions being, being promoted. And within ten years, then become then becoming commonplace. Yeah, I wonder if there was. I, I didn't see or haven't heard about any incentives being added into the legislation the U.S. is passing. But um, I I could easily see if we continue to have power reliability issues. I could see employers. Um, I could even see something somebody as small as Racket saying, "You know what? We're going to put five thousand dollars towards the cost of you having more reliable power." In your house, if if we if I was losing if I was losing days of productivity for people on a regular basis, helping then it, them find an incentive that gets down to the to the point of the the medium and small business. Yeah, a, a lot of companies already do like home office incentives, so sure, it, it's quite possible that uh, mm-hmm. that might be extended to again to yeah. part, do the I mean, continuity. It, yeah, it still does. You know, leave open the the question of power you know, of the primary power generation, and you know how you go about that. And I was trying to remember the French system has about fifty, as I recall, fifty or a few over fifty um, operating modest, moderate size nuclear. Um, power generation and they they generate something close to 80% of the country's electricity on the back of the nuclear um nuclear power plants is that very forward looking for them yeah i'm pretty sure let me just check yeah I, and i could i could see those coming in um you know i so I was talking to uh, you all know I'm Dave McQuarrie, and he and I were talking about this issue too. Mm-hmm. He was like, "Yeah, there's there's very little reason you couldn't see more nuclear in Texas. Um, it's mm-hmm. you know, there's yeah. there's plenty of wide open spots where you could you could yeah. not have to and deal with a lot of neighbors." What's interesting is the 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 plan for the, the French had a a, a fairly recent. Um, 
plan for a much larger fusion um, reactor-based power mm. system. And I think it got put on hold for some reason. They were having some kinds of problems. The the generation on the uh, what they called the Tokamok um, reactor has been very reliable. There are um, there is difficulty, as I recall, from about 2020, 2021, where they realized and they recognized that there's some uh, maintenance and renovation that has to be done to the to the plants to keep them operating safely and it you know but the the other point is they have had no incidents there is no history of a problem with with nuclear power generation in france but and all of the modern designs are are, are so incredibly safe yeah but talk about smr pebble bed like the, the like that, that that's what the last 20 30 years of nuclear design has focused on right but it's, it's it's been ignored or you know they the scare tactic has been been used to kind of wave off certainly in the US I'm, I don't know what has happened in Canada but um, yeah it's a it's a it's amazing what they have been able to do um, so I find that also very encouraging from the primary power generation. I think your point, Rob, is that if, in fact, we're looking for an incentive um, that drives consumer adoption of and placement of um, storage facilities, electric storage um, locally for continuity purposes, I think the the distributed workplace makes a lot of sense as a, well, as a good, good one. I I think <clears throat> there are certain things that need to go hand in hand. There's I I just put the link to the um, the Swiss water battery, which I find is <laughs> really fascinating. I love this thing. Um, for not only for its greenness, but the engineering ingenuity that it took to build. I had a conversation with someone probably about three weeks ago about this. And could you could you miniaturize it for use by consumers solely by recycling the water over and over and over again? Mm -hmm. And to me, this is a very effective way of doing it. But what they're also doing in Switzerland and surrounding areas that will be using the power that, that's coming out of this battery, this gymungous battery, is they're also looking at moving to the 24-hour schedule, looking at the fact that they are mostly remote now, remote workforce, and how they could sort of have business continuity on a 24-hour basis at the lowest possible cost to the company and the highest possible gain to the worker because they're very human first. So there's ongoing discussions about that kind of capability in, I would say in Switzerland, I know there's a little bit in Germany, but not a lot. Um, in Italy, they're talking about it as well. And the next big high-tech center in Europe, which is Portugal. 
where Google is the next high tech center. Oh, okay. I can see it. You know, they have for the last three years, they've been doing a huge uh, jump in building little tech centers along the coast, particularly in the Algarve, because their only other industry is really tourism and fishing. And fishing is kind of, you know, taking it. Tourism and tech centers actually go well together. Yeah. Pardon? Tourism and tech centers actually go very well together. Yeah. But no, there's a there's a lot of AI work that's going on there, and there's a lot of hubs that are kind of springing up, but um, around that kind of thing. But the the services to a worker and the services to the corporation are dovetailing together in a way that you hit upon earlier which is if you had lost productivity out of people, you'd be looking to offset their expense to have constant power or constant communication. I think that dovetailing is going to spark a new little industry of its own. I think we're just getting so used to the work from home and remote workforce idea that the services to provide for those people are going to start spawning a lot of new businesses, new ideas about how you deliver that, how it's compensated, how it's incentivized, and the value to the municipalities or the, you know, location. I, I also I, see uh, I, I also see that there being a case for adopting cloud or or these distributed methodologies. Um, sure. from IT to power distribution. Because now we don't have, like, w- once we start distribute, with distributed power generation, we no longer have a single main source of power. So the the power grids are have a potential for seeing a a paradigm shift in, in, in how they the, the work and, and distribute their power. This is decentralized. It is decentralized. I mean, right now the 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 power grids are not very agile to, to use an IT uh, terminology, and 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 that uh, power fluctuations in power generations are felt. <laughs> hundreds or thousands of, of miles away but, but because how sensitive the, the grids are to to fluctuations at the source. I think that there is an opportunity for applying lesson learned lessons learned in in resource management from the cloud to Towards modernizing the, the, these grids as more distributed power generation comes into place. Thank you, everybody. As always, thank you. A very delightful conversation. Yeah. Cheers. Bye bye. Bye all. Wow, what a fantastic and interesting discussion. Uh, this element of having a resilient infrastructure is critical to all of us, but not all parts of our infrastructure 
have incentives that align with people's individual needs. And it's a fascinating thing to think through how we can align those conversations. This is a conversation that we are going to come back to and have more. We're going to decompose different types of supply chains, dependencies, and shortages in this context. So please join us at the 2030.cloud. Be part of these conversations. We want to hear from you. Thank you for listening to the Cloud 2030 podcast. It is sponsored by RackN, where we are really working to build a community of people who are using and thinking about infrastructure differently, because that's what RackN does. We write software that helps put uh, operators back in control of distributed infrastructure, really thinking about how things should be run and building software that makes that possible. If this is interesting to you, uh, please try out the software. We would love to get your opinion and, and, and hear how you think this could transform infrastructure more broadly, or just keep enjoying the podcast and coming to the uh, discussions and you know laying out your thoughts and how you see the future unfolding. It's all part of building a better infrastructure operations community. Thank you.